like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, we are still working through the four novels Philip K. Dick wrote or published in 1964. We started with... Which one did we start with? Uh, Martian Time Slip. Then we looked at The Simulacrum. And then we followed that up with Clans of the Alphane Moon. And now I am going to take an extended look at the penultimate truth. And as I explained in my last episode, where I looked at Clans of the Alphane Moon, just given my situation right now, I'm I'm recording this in the United States, uh, kind of on a little bit of a of a break. And then after that, I'm, I'm moving to China, where I'll be starting a new job. So uh, instead of doing the long multi-part episodes for these novels i i may continue to do the the one-off the longer one-off episodes because it's it's actually it's a little bit easier to to find time to do like one or two or three hour recording than it is to do you know five or six uh, shorter 30 40 minute recordings and uh, you know we'll see i i kind of like the format of the shorter episodes but it's you know it's a, it's a little bit easier for me to to do it this way for now now okay so in this episode we're going to be looking at at the penultimate truth uh the penultimate uh penultimate meaning of course second to last and and so there there's several different contexts for that here uh i think it really has to do with the climax of the novel and the kind of the ambiguous ending to the novel suggesting that there's another layer to 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 the falsehood now what is this novel about um this is first of all this is a novel that connects many uh, short story ideas that Dick had and he kind of crams them all together and some are incorporated quite well some are just seem sort of bit added on but it does work as a straight up novel with a single plot it's less disparate than novels like the simulacrum it it does all come together really really nicely but there are ideas from various stories the three most important I- stories that Dick is drawing from and you may want to read these if you decide to to take a look at the penultimate truth and read through it and, and think about it. And the first of these is The Defenders, which is the story about a war that drove all the humans underground where they live in bunkers and they're doing the manufacturing. And in that story, the robots on Earth end the war and then start to rebuild Earth and decide not to let the humans know that the war is over until such a time that humans will be ready for a world peace. And so they're being tricked, but they're being tricked for this kind of positive purpose. That idea is, is in the penultimate truth, but it's twisted in that it's not robots doing it for the better of humanity. It's actually a small group of humans maintaining this lie that the war is going on for the benefit of themselves and to sustain a class structure. And I'll just come on and say it right now at this point. Anyone, I, I know that Mark, or I know that Dick is not a Marxist. I know he's not writing really from a Marxist perspective. And he often does come out quite openly like, against Marx. So I think it's kind of futile to do a kind of a Marxist reading of Philip K. Dick's work, or at least it would be really against the intention of, of Philip Dick himself. Uh, I do think he is a observer of late capitalism, however, and I, I think Dick is very good at talking about late capitalism or what we would now call late capitalism. 
He didn't really have that, that terminology as far as I know. But that said, if, if anyone who doesn't think that Dick is pursuing materialistic themes and, and class analysis hasn't read The Penultimate Truth or hasn't read it very closely, this is a story about class and it's a story about labor and in, in large degree it's a story about social inequities in the urban landscape and in between producer and consumer. So in, in that sense, you can, you can, I guess, apply a Marxist reading to it. Now, it may not be Dick's intention here, but certainly Dick is thinking about class and production. And he does it a lot in the 1960s, in fact. I, you know, he, has, he has ideas about production in the 50s, like with Autofac, and that's kind of the dangers of automation stuff. But by the 60s, he's more and more interested in labor and physical labor and drudgery in ways that maybe he wasn't as conscious of in, in the 50s. He has some stories, like I think... Uh, the Piper in the Woods and things like that, that that do talk about drudgery, but it's much stronger in the 60s. And in the penultimate truth, you have it. And then it kind of reaches its climax with Galactic Pot Healer, which I, I think is his greatest novel. And that's all about labor and it's all about alienation. And it's all about how we find meaning in life through our work and how that gets taken from us. So by taking the idea in The Defenders, which is about the human beings not being ready for, for world peace and being stuck in a war mentality and therefore unable to be allowed back on the surface. It's completely changed into a system sustained purely for the preservation of a class system and a class structure. Now, in now the second story that Dick is drawing from closely on this one is The Mold of Yancey, right? In fact, we have... Now, in, in The Mold of Yancey, that story is about a some people go to like Ganymede to observe this weird political system where everyone thinks alike. And then they see that the the leader there, Yancey is just like a very folksy person, gives very folksy speeches and very banal speeches, but they're speeches that tend to create conformity and homogeneity among the people who listen. And therefore you kind of get authoritarianism without the police state. You get it merely through kind of folksy political rhetoric or like, you know, here's so that story is more about the importance of the symbolic figure who can create ideological conformity. That's used here. Um, there is a Talbot Yancey, although in this story he's he's a simulacrum. So I guess there's a shout out there to the simulacrum. I don't know which one he wrote first, but there's certainly you know the president being a robot is in both of these. The leaders on the surface who have the property and the power and the land and control of the truth are called Yance men, and they have a certain you know, they have all the, they have, they're the ones with the real power in, in this society. Now, that's, they're not uniform. They have different factions and different ideas, and, and th there's, there's intrigues amongst them. But as a group, they're the people in power, and they're called the Yance men. It, there's really, even the idea of kind of folksy language is played with here as Yance men write these speeches, and these speeches are supposed to keep, you know, people working down in the bunkers and keep their spirits up and, and, and keep them in line, so to speak, and the use of political language is something that Dick cares a lot about in, in this story. Now, the third tale of his own that he draws from in writing this story is called The Unreconstructed M. And I can go back and listen to my thoughts on that, that episode. That is a story about a frame job involving a robot that can leave specific points of evidence because of the criminal justice system or the, investigate, the detective system in which people are prosecuted and, and convicted, essentially, on an aggregate of circumstantial evidence. 
So, um, and then you have a robot assassin who not only does the assassination, but does the frame job. And that's like, there's a scene that's almost shot for shot from that story in the penultimate truth as well. So those are the three big stories that Dick draws from, and that's actually a sizable chunk of the story. But at least in the case of the Mold of Yancey and the Defenders, he doesn't really stick with the themes. He's using the device and some aspect of the idea, the science fiction idea he played with. He recycles it, but he puts it in a different context and for different purposes. So especially, I don't think it's fair to say that this is like a retreading or an expansion of the Defenders because they're essentially very, very different stories that are being told. The purpose of the lie is entirely different, right? In fact, the Defenders is, is almost an optimistic tale, and this is a much more pessimistic story. So anyways, that's a bit of the background. Now, what is this story about? Well, it, it deals with many things. As I already said, it's about labor, it's about power, and it's about power being used to control labor and to sustain a class system. That's one part of it. It's also about cities and development and the urban scape. And I'm going to get into some details about that, but it's very, very interesting how Dick frames kind of urban life here. And there's not many people on the surface, so we're going to get throwbacks to maybe the game players of Titan, which had a similar idea that there's not that many people on the surface anymore. Now, there's essentially a handful of different urban geographies we're presented with. We got lit- what are literally called Ozymandian structures, so like pyramids, right, uh, like ancient Egyptian structures, in where the elite live. We have slums where former tankers, tankers are the ones who live below ground, come up and live on the surface and choose to live on the outskirts of society. Um, and then you have like the tanks itself, which are kind of like the suburbs where you have the productive classes doing their work and, and, and kind of trapped in a bubble. So there's some interesting things he's playing with with urban geography. And he even has these like grotesque uh, developments talked about, which is the same thing you had in Martian time slip. Like Dick had something, you know, not, something in his butt about, you know, urban, like development and like these huge apartment complexes because he criticizes them in Martian time slip. He does it again here in the penultimate truth where they just seen as, as horrible places. Right. But these are intended to be mass apartment complexes for the former, former tankers who come up to live in. And one of the Yansmen is trying to profit from this. So they want to keep their big estates, their feudal estates that they're living on, but, you know, allow the tankers to come up and then shove them into apartments that they can then continue to profit from their their misery basically their mood the, the idea is they would move from bunkers underground to bunkers above ground so the story is about that now the other thing the story is about certainly is the concept of media bubbles and i think that's what, something that makes the story very relevant to us today the tankers certainly live in media bubbles where they only get a certain source of information and their whole view of the world is shaped by that um, we, we think, how could this be possible? But we live today in, a, in an era in which a lot of people do live in media bubbles. And those are media bubbles of their own creation, right? They, they go on Facebook or they go on YouTube and they just watch the videos of the people that are sympathetic to their point of view, right? And they don't get any other points of view, perspectives, right? Now, this is a forced media bubble that the people below the surface look at uh, or live in. What else do we have in this story? Those are the big themes, I think, in the story. We, we have, of course, the theme of war. Um, we have, I guess, the theme of life-extending technology is an important one here as well. Uh, there's one character, Bros, who's basically the top Yance man, and he is hoarding all the artificial organs that have survived the war because he wants to basically live forever and, and you know, or live as long as possible. 
and and this is making it difficult for other people to have access to it. And pe- characters actually die or are threatened to die because they don't have access to artificial limbs. And it's all because Bros hoards them. So the idea of an old man holding on to the ability to sustain life for himself while other people die is something that certainly I think bioethicists and as we get more into genetic engineering and think about questions about what to do about life extending technology, how do we ensure it's distributed fairly and equitably in a very unequal world? These are deep moral questions we're facing, and they're 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 played with here in in the story. There's also a little bit here about Native Americans and the fate of the American Indian and the idea that the American Indian can come back and get his revenge someday in the future after genocide. It's something he did in. Dr. Futurity, and it comes up here again in, in a slightly different form, but it, it's it's kind of interesting how, how he does it. Uh, in fact, there's a character who is a Native American that no one even recognizes what an Indian looks like anymore, so they think he's burned from living in, in a hot zone, like a place with high radiation. In fact, he's just got dark skin because he's, he's an Indian. Um, and he's going to play an important role in this, in this story. We have a little bit of time travel here, um, but I mean, those are the heart of what this story is about. I think it's about living in a media bubble, and how power enslaves labor. And then something we don't always get from Dick, we get it sometimes, it's, it's not absent, but and that is the theme of resistance. We, we, I think some people read Philip K. Dick kind of through a very pessimistic lens, and I often think that's right to do. I, I don't think Dick is a primarily optimistic writer. I don't think he's, you know, he's not, he's not like an Asimov, right? He's not thinking the future's going to be bright, you know? He, he thinks the future is going to be bleak and he does think power can win and he does think people can remain slaves. But he often gives windows of hope and he often opens up that door and some books that door is big, larger than others. And I think in this story, we have a fairly large gap in which there's there's a space for hope and resistance and change. Right. And that's it, it's kind of like the simulacrum in that way where we're, the novel ends at the very moment in which the revolution can begin. And we're not given the story of what happens afterwards. And I, I think that's kind of brilliant and clever in a way. Because we don't know what's going to happen when the tankers figure out the truth and they come to the surface. And there's so many variables at work. And there's so many different options available to them. And there are some good reasons why maybe you want to slow that down and, and have a more moderate, um, kind of a more moderate uh, phasing out of the old system, right? That the system shouldn't change overnight. It'd be too dramatic. And then we have characters who say, well, this is a chance for me to rise up and, and, you know, be the new power holder and to create a new lie, right? That's why we have the title, The Penultimate Truth, because the doors open also for another power holder, a new bros, a new generation of Yansmen to to control a changed system. So it's not 100% optimistic, but there are spaces to think, yeah, this system can change. It's not enduring, right? And I think this is part of Dick's prolonged dialogue with Orwell, Orwell who thinks power is kind of eternal, it's the boot stamping on the face for all time. Dick doesn't see power that way. He does see it as much more fluid and able to change. Not always change in a good way. Sometimes it can change in ways that are are bad, but you know it still can change. And it and that change makes resistance and makes imagining different systems possible. And so I think that's where the optimism dwells. Um, so, anyways, that that's my backdrop to the penultimate truth. So, if you know, if I hope you've read this novel, if you haven't, I do urge you to to read it. I, I don't think it's as best of his 1960s, but it's 
certainly one of the more important ones for us because it does deal with issues of the media and labor, BS jobs, which I'll, I'll talk about more later on, and you know, fake news is, is certainly an issue at work here as well. So anyways, that's that's my opening. That's my opening thoughts about the penultimate truth. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk through the chapters and the stories. And, and as with themes introduced, I'll, I'll, I'll reflect on them a little bit. It's it's a long, it's not a long novel. It's it's no real. It's not really longer than the simulacrum. In fact, I think Dick had sounds like it seems like Dick had pretty strict word counts from his publishers. So none of his books, you know, go much behind 200 pages. Sometimes they're published. You know, a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, but that has a lot to do with the typeface and things. So, um, this is pretty much as long as all the other novels Dick wrote at this time. But it has 29 chapters, so the chapters are much shorter, and this the story's a little bit uh, different. It's paced, it's paced differently than some of the other novels uh, Dick wrote. Normally, normally his books are like 15 to 16 chapters. This is one of the ones that that is cut up a little bit more, and it's not a big change, but it does make perhaps giving a play-by-play a little bit. It will have to be at a different pace, I think. So anyways, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to jump right into this and give my thoughts on this and then and then come back and give some final thoughts about the story. I, I think kind of the, the same things I already talked about are, are, are what's there. That, that's, what's, that's the heart of it. But there'll be other things that come up too, I'm sure, and I'll, and I'll get to them. So uh, I'll just start right now with, with chapter one of, of The Penultimate Truth. So as the, the novel opens, we're introduced to our main character, Joseph Adams. We, we sort of have three main characters here. Um, and this is the first of the ones we meet. He is, he is the biggest character in terms of like page, you know, the number of pages he's on and it's kind of the importance to the story. And he's, uh, he's a Yance man and he's on, so that means he's on the surface. We don't quite know the whole situation at this point in the story. We just meet this guy who's working on a speech. All right? It's later on that we, we learn the situation we're in. So he's writing a speech for, for Yancey, a political speech that will be aired down in the bunkers. right? And he's trying to work on this speech and figure it out. And he's got a little technology that helps him do it. It's called the rhetorizer. And so it allows him... It's kind of like a fancy thesaurus almost where you put in a word... And it will then create like cultural references and folksy idioms and ideas to connect to it. So you might say like squirrel and, you know, and valor or something. And it'll try to make connections between those two things. I forget the exact ones he did, but one of the words was squirrel, right? So if you have a speech and you want to use squirrel as the core kind of image in that speech, you kind of connect it to a value. And then it will actually write, write sentences. Now, he doesn't quite like what he he's doing here and he's kind of bored and we have work here where like a machine is doing a lot of the heavy lifting mentally. And I, I think it's interesting. We, we often think when we talk about automation that it's going to be physical labor that's going to be automated. And certainly a lot of that went, will be and can be, but also a lot of intellectual labor can be automated. I mean, computers take over the job of, of what, you know, human computers used to do. So mental labor can be replaced as well. And, and Dick certainly imagines here that, that intellectual labor, like even writing a speech, could be something that's somewhat automated. It's not entirely automated. It doesn't do a very good job, at least not in Joseph Adams' point of view. He's, he's a fairly good speechwriter. He learns later on he's not the best. Um, another major character in the novel, I mean, David Lantano, is proven to be much better. 
but he's very much interested in political rhetoric and language and how language is used and and he's he likes he's interested in this lie and he actually studies quite a lot about the how this pretty massive lie has been sustained for for so long and for so many generations um, but we do have the theme here of the dependence on the machine and he's struggling to write this speech on a squirrel now we're introduced to another couple things in this opening scene one of which is bros who's the boss of of joseph adams this this top yance man who kind of controls the political rhetoric uh and that's the main job of the yance it seems is to do that now they do a lot of other things because they have a lot of leisure time and they have a lot of land and they have a lot of power and we'll get to that in in future chapters um another thing he has though are leddies and this this is the term for essentially the robots that they have now these were robots that were originally built for military purposes when the war ended and the people who were on the surface decided to to stop fighting but to keep the people who lived in the bunkers below ground they had those people continue to produce leddies which are these war robots and but they just got repurposed and remanufactured and this is a, an idea we see in the zap gun which is a novel we'll look at in a couple weeks when we look at the novels of 1965 in the zap gun you have uh this idea of plowsharing weapons. You build weapons and then you, you plowshare them into consumer goods. In this story, you just it's the same thing sort of happened where these leddies who were built for war become butlers. They become, they, some stay as soldiers, right? In fact, some of these Yancemen will fight almost feudal battles and kind of almost dress up where these leddies are their, their vassals. And it's kind of almost a game for them because um, they're not playing with real lives. I mean, they are playing with real lives because there's lives under the, in the bunkers that are building these leddies. But in their mind, they're, they're just kind of play, playing at war. So sometimes they still do that. But largely, these are servants and their entourages. And all these Yancemen will carry around these huge entourages of, of leddies because there's not any humans around to, to create those entourages. And we, we learn here that, that Joseph Adams has, has these leddies. Now, one thing that's pointed out is because everything is a lie and, and his whole job is lies, he actually has a hard time clinging to true memories. And there's even this conversation about a squirrel where squirrels are extinct, but, you know, he has some kind of memory of seeing a squirrel. And that's why he wants to make him do a speech. And then Yancey will then give a speech about how he saw a squirrel, which, of course, is a lie. And towards the end of the chapter, actually right at the end of the chapter, he ponders whatever in or over Earth memories were suggesting there's there's not really a clear idea of these memories are false right and if you live in a media bubble if you live in lies for long enough even if you're the creator of the lies you start to lose a grip on on reality and truth itself okay then chapter two in chapter two we are introduced to our our second main character and he seems kind of important early on. He actually is hes more of an observer throughout much of the story. He doesn't have that huge of a role to play. I think the story much more centers on Joseph Adams. It'd be interesting if they were to make a film series or a film of this. Would they make Nicholas St. James or would they make Joseph Adams? Who, who would get the Tom Cruise role? Um, I'm not quite sure because it would be very different stories if you focused on the Nicholas St. James quest, which might be more attractive to a lot of people because it's kind of the the working man struggling against great odds and striking out bravely for the unknown and it's a more compelling story but joseph adams actually is the the heart of this this tale you know dick always likes those middle management um types the the people in power but people who maybe aren't on the top right who are kind of squeezed 
Um, but it, Nicholas St. James is a fairly interesting character, partially because of his the dilemmas he's facing and the struggles he's he's facing. He's a tanker, meaning he's living below ground in these bunkers, and his his tank is called the Tom Mix, and they're all have different names of. I mean, that's like a celebrity name he, that that one is from, and he's got a lot of troubles he's facing. He's they're, and they're like, actually related troubles, but they're just the overall troubles of, of someone who's tr- basically trying to manage a factory, right? And essentially, these tanks are factories with certain quotas, output quotas. And he's worried he's not going to be able to meet them, right? And in fact, the order from above has just been increased. Like they, they kind of upgrade the types of leddies they want, and they're harder to make, and they take more time. Now, at the same time, he's struggling with this guy, Nunez. N-U-N-E-S, who is essentially the political representative of, of the government. And he's always there to kind of watch over Nicholas St. James. So he prevents Nicholas St. James from having total autonomy. Essentially, St. James knows he is simply an extension. He's just a servant of, of the state. And Nunez is the, the figure that, that enforces that. So that it prevents him from actually being as free as he would like to be. The other trouble he's facing is the person, one of the major engineers, repair man in the Tom Nix is dying. And essentially he's dead by this point. Um, I think there's a, no, there's like one short scene, but he dies later on and they have to put him in like cryogenic freezing because he's got like a bad pancreas and he, he dies. And the only way he can live is if they get an artificial pancreas, which is almost impossible to get, right? Now the story they get about artificial organs is that they're all needed for the military war effort. Right, but there are the this belief that there are organs up north, up, up on the surface. Now, Nicholas St. James and the other people that Tom Mix believe, well, we're producing for the war effort, and we can't do that without our repairman. So we this is essential to the war effort. So we should have access to these these organs. But it's pretty much an impossible task. It's you can petition for one, but you're not going to get it. So with the repairman dying, they're not they're going to be less likely. Almost it's going to be impossible for them to make their quota. Now what happens if quotas aren't made? In their mind, in fact, probably nothing happens, right? We know we don't actually see this tested out. But the whole point is to keep these people below ground. And to keep them making leddies, right? If they can't, you can raise the quota to put some pressure on them. But the threat they're given, that is, if they don't make their quota, the, the tanks will be neutral, will be dissolved. The people will be sent to the surface, will probably die. Well, that's not the truth, right? The truth is they can survive on the surface. And many ex-tankers do live on the surface. And they don't really want them there. A lot of the Neansmen don't even want them there and want them stuck below ground. So if they don't make their quota, it doesn't really matter, right? So essentially, they have bullshit jobs. They have BS jobs because I guess the elite are kind of consuming what they make with leddies, but these leddies really have no function. They're, they're just entourages and servants upon servants upon servants that they, they have so many that they don't know what to do with them all, it seems. So it's it's all about just keeping them in a state of servitude. Now think about the consumer society we live in today where we produce much more than people need to actually survive, even much more than they need for a comfortable life. Um, we produce enough food for 10 million people and yet a billion people starve. You know, we're, But people, we still think we need more food, right? And it's that kind of logic that is keeping millions, perhaps billions of people in these bunkers enslaved for no reason, for no true economic reason, except that they're not wanted on the surface and there's no space for them in the new system that's been created above ground.
Now, of course, Nicholas St. James doesn't know this. He thinks the Earth is at war. He thinks if they don't build these levees, their own existence is at risk, their survival as a community is at risk, and the war effort's at risk. Now, to be reminded of this, they get news that Detroit's just been destroyed, all right? And it's all in the news feeds, and they actually see a, ci a city, Detroit, blown up with with nukes. They Later on, we learn that this was all a model, and there's actually a company, a production company that makes these films that uh, show these destruction of cities. But they get the news feed that Detroit has been destroyed. Um, they're behind in the production of Letty's. There's this conflict with the political agent, Nunez. And then as chapter two ends, they get Yancey's speech and they hear these reassuring words from Yancey about how despite Detroit being destroyed, they're going to pers um, persevere on in in the war effort. Again, we essentially, we, ha we have the example of people in a media bubble. And here the media bubble is not for, like in our media bubble era, it's it's more for people feel comfortable, right? If they get just the news that they're, they want to hear. In this world, the media bubble is specifically created to sustain authority over, over others. And so we get a really good window with these two chapters at two sides of, of the world we're living in, right? Where we have on the surface, a handful of elite who have fairly comfortable lives. And we have a, millions of people in the bunkers who are miserable and suffering and anxious and, and believing that the war to end all wars is taking place on the surface when it's not at all. And actually it's, you know, I guess in a more conventional storyteller would start with the bunkers and then expose the truth to the reader over time, right? As Nicholas St. James. And, you know, it's, I think that if they were to film this, that's probably what would happen. We would start with Nicholas St. James in the bunker and then he learns the truth over time, right? But Dick, you no, know, he starts, he tells us the truth right away that this is all the big, big lie. And that's kind of bold, I think, and, and interesting. And it shows you that the focus isn't so much on learning about the truth, but the power system itself. And, and he's much more interested in the machinations of the powerful. And much of the plot of the story is really, you know, internal shenanigans between Yansman and not really about sustaining this truth. Once it's, he, once it's established that this is going on, Dick kind of leaves it and says, no, now I'm going to talk about how these Yansmen are at each other's throats and how fragile this system really is. But anyways, that's chapter two, really about the tankers and their anxieties. So, oh, I forgot, uh, chapter three. Um, I forgot to mention that the, the name of the guy, the, the repairman, the one who's dying, his name's Sue, it's, um, Sousa. Yeah, he'll come up. He'll just mention mostly. He's, they do have a short scene with him. But mostly he's just there as a plot device to force Nicholas St. James to get to the surface, right? In fact, this story could be told without Nicholas St. James going to the surface, actually. I mean, th there is a, a small role for him at, towards the end of the novel, but it's more about, you know, a window into this, the, how the truth is revealed to one person. And, I, and it does work, and it, it allows Dick to go to certain places that his main characters aren't um, early on in the story. But anyways... Um, Chapter three. So chapter three, this is after Yancey's speech. And now Nicholas St. James is taking questions from the, the members of the Tom Mix. He's trying to reassure them, and, but at the same time, tell them the honest truth about the situation they're in, how the quota has been increased, how Suze is dying, they probably will die if they can't get a Art of Forge pancreas. And, you know, how the war seems to be going bad and how that's going to increase their burden in the long term as well. And I think what's really powerful about this 
passage is you hear the anguish. You, you actually witness the, the suffering of the tankers as they realize that they're not doing their job, that, they're, that their jo- they think their job is so important, and it's not. And, and that, that's why I use this term bullshit jobs. And that's, I'm getting, of course, from David Graeber's recent book, you know, on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs, where he explores this idea that maybe many of us who think our jobs are important, maybe they're not, or maybe we know our job is baloney, so we convince ourselves that it is important in some way, but that there's a lot of work that's being done that isn't that relevant to anyone. It doesn't help anyone. It's And Graeber thinks it's a significant amount of work that's being done. There are non-bullshit jobs. They're not all work is, but a lot of it is. And why have it? Right? His question is, in a capitalist world where you're trying to be efficient and make money and make profit, why would you hire anyone for a job that wasn't absolutely necessary? And the only answer Graeber can come to is that it's about control. It must be about you know, the control of capital and labor dis- class discipline, right? This idea that if you're not working, you're going to be homeless, right? So it's a, it's a threat. It, it's the gun, right, of the capitalist system. But we see here at a deeper level of it where, where we have people who really believe that they're failing the system, they're failing their country. And there's a lot of, lot of anguish here. And I, I think it's, it's quite powerfully done. Now, Nicholas is, at the all, during all this period, very anxious about Commissioner Nunez. Now, now the government on the surface, the, the U.S. government is called the Estes Park government. And I guess that's where they are now. They're not in Washington anymore. They're in Estes Park. Um, but, you know, from their perspective, it doesn't really matter where it is or if it's even there, right? Everything is a lie. Everything is a... Um, everything is is false, um, and and Nicholas St. James sometimes thinks about just killing Nunez, but he he said he can't. He decides you can't because the power of the government is too strong. Quote: It's been suggested to him, and he had promptly and a great deliberate effort forgotten forever the names of those who had come to him, that the Polcom might quietly be quietly dispatched some night. No, Nicholas had said, it won't work, because they'll send another, and Dale Nunez is a man, not a force. And would you prefer to deal with the Estes Park as a force on your on your TV screen, which you could see in here, but not talk back to? End quote. And this is really fascinating. I, I've sometimes wondered why totalitarian systems use these pop political agents, you know, and, you know, like schools in China have party members who are kind of at the equal level as the president, right? A lot of companies have party members who are there to oversee. Why, why waste time with this, right? And maybe part of it is you feel more comfortable when you talk to someone, right? Like if you run into a bureaucratic trouble and you finally get to talk to the human being on the other end, right? You feel comforted that, oh, now I have someone who can like empathize with me and solve my problem, right? It may not be true. They may just be just as harsh as the logic cold logic of the bureaucracy and it's in in just the as you know the bureaucracy is the book of rules right that's intimidating and brutal when you meet a person you think oh finally someone i can lodge reason with right but they're just extensions of the same rule book and it's it's a false comfort we get from the, you know the interpersonal relationship and nicholas here is giving into that in a way thinking well at least he's a person we could talk to right it's, if we kill Nunez, then we're going to have to deal with the government on the surface, which in the end of the day probably doesn't care that much what happens in Tom Nix. We, we see almost no one caring on the surface that the tankers actually work. 
And that's what's fascinating to me. Yeah, they want their leddies and things like that, but they don't really care how they get them or how many they have. They have more than enough. It's certainly post-scarcity. And so it's all about control. There, there's really no evidence I see in this book that anyone on the surface cares that the, le- that the leddies are being produced in a certain quota, right? It's just part of the facade of, of a war effort. But anyway, it's, it's all part of the bleakness that the, situ- that the, le- that the tankers are in. Now, we get a little bit of a window, a little bit of a suggestion here that some people on below the surface realize that not, not, not it's all right with Yancey, all right? And it, it has to do a lot with memory, right? And it's the same thing Nicholas St. James, or sort of like Joseph Adams said in the first chapter, that where, where's the real earth memories? I mean, it's not clear what they are. Uh, Carol, who I think, yeah, she's Nicholas's like spouse, or partner suggests that Yancey changes, right? And and her evidence is that in one speech he said coup de grace, and another he said coup de gras, like he pronounced it more properly. And one he pronounced it with the S. And that was a change over like a month. And it suggests like that's what, what you would expect from someone who is like an automaton, right? You'd also expect it from someone perhaps like President Trump who you know, in one speech, he's coached on how to pronounce it. In the next speech, he, he forgot. So he just pronounced it, you know, however he wants. So uh, you, humans can make this mistake, but usually a, a well-educated politician would be able to be, be fairly consistent about how they pronounce a foreign word like that. But if it's a program computer programmed by different people, you might get these different pronunciations. And it shows that Yancey seems to be changing and Carol seems to know something is up. But she doesn't say, oh, he must be a robot. She, she thinks there might be another explanation. She does know something's up, though. She she asked, like, if the leddies are fighting the war, what are the in the military hospitals? Leddies? No, because they send damaged leddies down to us. Our shops, for instance. And a leddy is a metal construct and it has no pancreas. There are a few humans on the surface, of course. The Estates Park government and PAC people, the Soviet, are the pancreases for them. Something is wrong. There can't be a military hospital because there aren't civilians or soldiers who've been maimed in the fighting and who need artifacts. Yet they won't release the artifacts to us. To me, for instance, for Sousa, even though they know we can't survive without Sousa. Think about it, Nick. And she leaves, the chapter ends with a challenge to him to do something about this. So she's basically trying to convince him that there must be something going on on the surface. There must be a way to get an artifact pancreas. And besides, you might as well try to go up to the surface and get one because, and beg for one because if, if he dies... We're screwed, right? And this you're really our last, you're our last hope. So that's how chapter three ends with a really strong suggestion that some people in the tanks know something's wrong, right? That there's there's cracks in the media bubble. Now, how many people across the world have asked these questions? It's not clear, but one person that we meet has. But she's not she's not trying to say, well, there's some huge lie going on. She's just saying there's something weird going on with the hospitals, and you might have a chance to get an artifact. Pancreas for for Sousa. Chapter four. So in chapter four, we, we're, we're given the plan by which Nicholas is going to escape to the surface. Now he's going to go alone, but many other people in the, in the Tom mix are going to help him. And the plan here essentially is, the problem is, New, is Nunez. Nunez is going to be able to interfere with um, 
with any plan to escape, right? Because that's part of his job. And later on, we learn that there are these agents who are representatives of the service government, and their job is essentially to keep these people below ground. But the plan is to distract him and disable, you know, prevent him from interfering for a while, and, and they're going to cooperate on that, and then Nicholas is going to get to the surface. So that, that be, we basically get the plan. And that, that's how our story of, of Nicholas St. James ends for quite a, a big chunk of the novel. We don't run into Nicholas St. James again until I, maybe chapter like 12, 13, or, or you know, into like almost halfway into the novel, we, we pick up again with Nicholas St. James. So we're going to spend a huge chunk of time with Joseph Adams from this point on. So this story ends. And basically this, whole, this set of chapters, these few chapters allow us to get a window into the tankers and introduced to this character and learn his his crisis. As this chapter ends, though, and as we say goodbye to Nicholas St. James for a number of chapters, we just are presented to the terror, the horror he feels, and how fruitless his quest is. He seems he he really does think it's a it's it's hopeless. Quote: His bitterness surprised him, but of course it was superficial because, and he realized it as he began running hot water to which to shave. The actuality is that I'm a frightened man. I don't want to lodge myself for 48 hours in that vertical tunnel waiting to hear Nunez cut through below me or a team of Broses Letty police pick up the sound of my scoop from above and then, if not that, emerge from the radioactivity, the rubble, in the war, into the pox of death from which we fled, hidden ourselves. I don't want to emerge on the surface, even for a necessary cause. End quote. And a nice little notes here that the president of the Tom Nix is shaving with, with hot water and not shaving cream. So uh, that's the sense of just how miserable things are in, in the tanks and how little they have compared to what the luxury and their casual life that the people on the surface live. Okay, so that does it for like the setup of, of the story. So we, we, we have Joseph Adams, a propagandist on the surface, and we have Nicholas St. James, someone who's going to go to the surface and try to find an artifact pancreas. We pick up in Chapter 5 with, with Joseph Adams, and it allows us to get into the larger plot going on among the Yantsmen. And we learn that the Yantsmen are not all united, that they have a lot of conflicts and divisions, and they're... And there's political machinations that are much more important to them than actually what's going on below the surface. They're they're trying to they're, they're more interested on in the surface actually than the tanks as long as the tankers stay below below ground. So chapter five we're we're back with Joseph Adams and he's actually talking with his his friend and colleague who you know works in an agency like he does. He's another Yance man called Vern Lindblom. And he was actually involved in the building of the model of Detroit to blow up. And so he's part of this guy. He's, he's involved in the propaganda just like Joseph Adams is, but he's, he's kind of doing more of the physical production of, of the media events, while Joseph Adams is more in the, the political rhetoric um, thing. We, we were introduced they, through their conversations to Stanton Bros. Now, Stanton Bros is known. Joseph Adams mentioned him before as... Even the Nicholas St. James knows about him. He's essentially the the top Yanceman. Uh, his role is a little bit unclear to the people in the tanks, but he's very old. He's like in his 80s, and he's kind of falling apart. So this is kind of a classic Philip K. Dick character. Is this old guy who's kind of pieced together with artificial limbs and organs and stuff, and you know, a doctor's whole like a full time doctor's job is to keep this guy alive. 
um, that's revisited in uh, Now Wait for Last Year in quite interesting ways. He's very decrepit and and he lives off these artifacts that have survived the war. And he's the reason there's a shortage of it. And it's interesting that there is like post-scarcity and leddies. And for the Yansman, there's more than enough of everything. But that's sustained through this, you know, basically keeping everyone in near subsistence levels below. Now, I don't know if you were to free the tankers, would you have post-scarcity for everyone? You know, could automation have and leddies do the work for everyone and you could have kind of this communist utopia. I'm not sure, but certainly we have post-scarcity for some and drudgery and misery and, and, and scarcity for, for everyone else. Bros is very much overseeing Joseph Adams, keeping an eye on him. He over he looks at every single speech and, and comments on it and helps him revise it. Um, he actually shows up then, just as they're kind of talking about him, speak of the devil, he shows up and he wants to speak with, with Adams. And that, that's how chapter five ends. He's got a scheme, he's got a plan uh, to pursue with, with Adams. And so now we're going to start to get into the plot a little bit more. Chapter six. So Bros talks with Adams about the situation with this guy, Runsell. Runsell is... A Yansman. He's he's part of the elite, but he's essentially a real estate developer. And his plan is to build massive apartment comp- complexes on formerly radioactive lands that are basically unoccupied, and then to make these apartments for ex-tankers. And and slowly, and for him, it's in his interest then to release tankers gradually or, or more speedily than they're they're coming out now, though, to to f- to fill these apartments. Right? If you you can't have empty apartments, right? It doesn't do any good. You know, I guess China develops these, all these empty apartment complexes that no one can afford to live in. Um, but the plan is eventually people will live in them, right? And, you know, Runseler is a is a developer, and he wants people to to live in his apartments. So that's essentially what he's after. He, he's easy to understand. He's just a capitalist who's trying to expand his wealth. Bros, meanwhile, wants to undermine him and. And ruin his plan to do that and basically sabotage Runseler's groundbreaking on these new apartment complexes. And the plan to do that is to plant some artifacts from like an alien artifact on the land. And then when Runseler like digs them up, they'll be revealed and they'll be revealed as precious, important artifacts that can then be, well, then that land can be deemed like archaeologically significant he won't be able to develop the, his apartments there um, so he's trying to basically undermine Runsler's career by destroying this this development now why does the government hate him so much it's partially revealed here this is on page 43 I got the vintage version of the book quote Lewis Runs- Runcible, sorry, not Runcelier, Runcible. Lewis Runcible, who builds housing for tankers who comes up to the surface expecting to find war in progress, only discovered that the war ended years ago and the world's surface is one great park of villas and domains for the elite few. Why, Adams asked himself, must this man be slaughtered when he is so patiently performing a vital service? Not just for the tankers who surface, but who must live somewhere, but to us, the Yansmen. Because, as we all know it, we all face it, the tankers living in Runcible's Conaps are prisoners, and the Conaps constitute reservations, or, as the more modern world word has it, concentration camps. Preferable to the end tanks underground, but still camps from which they cannot even briefly leave legally. 
And when in a couple or a gang of them manage to sneak away illegally, as in General Holt's army down there in West Dam or Marshal Hensary's army in Peepock, anyways, it is the army of very skilled veteran leddies who track them down to return them to the swimming pools, 3D TVs, and wall-to-wall wub fur carpeted conaps. End quote. So, Runcible is basically going to run concentration camps, but it's also it's going to be a pass for these tankers to get out. And I, the idea here is that there's a threat here. If these tankers leak out or kind of just increase the numbers. So there's a conflict here between the government's goal of keeping these tankers underground and Runcible's who wants at least some of them to the surface. And there's also this worry in by the government, by Bros, um, in particular, and these other high-level Yancemen, that Runcible is basically alerting tankers to the truth that the war's over because he wants a supply of, of people to live in his apartments. Um, so now we, we're we going to get a series of chapters, starting with chapter 7, basically chapter 7 through 10, where Dick spends a lot of time just describing how the world got to this point. So mostly these are historical reflections by centering on Joseph Adam, Adams. Um, and it, it, there's a couple themes through these chapters, one of which is is the importance of lies in sustaining this political order. The second major theme is like the fragility of the structure, just how unstable it really is and how it kind of gradually evolved um, and how the system is kind of ad hoc. It wasn't a grand conspiracy that was figured out one day. It just kind of evolved over time, but it's still incredibly, incredibly fragile. Now into this section, we also are introduced to David Lantano, who is another major character in the novel. Um, he's kind of the, the wild card character here where, and he's, he, he's introduced to Adams basically as a threat in the sense that he's a much better at rhetoric and he's a much more persuasive thinker and he's, he's got great speeches, right? And Joseph Adams, who struggled, we see him first see him in the novel struggling with a speech. He meets someone who, who's for speech writing is natural and, and easy. Now, as chapter seven opens, we're given the, the idea of secret plans, right? And it's, it, it, what's happened to the world here, the Yancemen, the, the plan, the, the, the scheme to keep the tankers underground is compared to this final solution by the Nazis and that there's no, there was no single written down playbook. It's it just something that, that evolved over time by people in positions of, of authority. Um, the original scheme essentially was, it, it just is more developed, right? The fear initially, I guess, was that the people on the surface who knew the war was over feared bringing all these people who have been at war for a long period of time and have lost so much, they'll, they'll be full of anger and angst. So actually, the original intention was very similar to the defenders, that they'll come up and if they come up right away, they'll, they'll be another war, right? So we need to rebuild first, but then there'd be another war. So we need to hold off on letting people up, right? Quote, that was the rationale. The masses have egged their leaders onto war in both West Dem and Pack Peep. And once the masses were out of the way, stuffed down into, into the anti-Semitic tanks, the ruling elite of both East and West were free to conclude a deal. Although strangely, in a sense, it had not been them at all. Not Bros, not General Holt, who had been C&C of West Dem or even Marshal Haranzi, the top officer of the hierarchy of the Soviet brass. But the fact that both Holtz and Haranzi knew when it was time to use the missiles, and when it was time to come to quits. This was all true, and without it, without their joint responsibility, peace would not have been possible. But underneath this collaboration of the two top military men lay something else, something to which Adams, to which Adams was real and strange and, in a sense, deeply moving. The recon distant Council of Leddies in the Mexican city, Era, Era America, or 
Air Camerica, and had the job of assisting in the, the job of forcing the peace on the planet. And as the governing body, the final arbiter, it had not gone away. Man had built a weapon that could think for itself. And after it had thought for a while, two years in which vile destruction had occurred, with the leadies locked hip and thigh, each, each with the other, the two huge artificial armies from two land masses, advanced varieties of leadies who had been constructed with an eye towards utilizing their analytic brains. So this, this is how it opens up that the leadies were more diverse and could be used for reclamation efforts and eventually for all these this service jobs, right? Um, and so it's a really gradual development. That's the point we're given here, that the original intention was just to hold off on and on letting people back up until peace was secure. And then over time, people just got complacent and they just continued the 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 system, you know, the way things were going. And this is why Runcible is now seen as such a big threat, right? That he is threatening to bring up all these tankers who are kind of an unknown agent. It's not clear what their presence on the surface will do. And that makes him an antagonist to to the Antsman. Now, again, he's not like a libertarian. He's not really interested in freeing the tankers. He's interested in his own thing. But it's something that's a challenge to the ruling order nonetheless. We learn here about the fact that the Yancey, Talbot Yancey, is a, is a simulacrum, and we just have the simulation of a leader. But throughout all this, Joseph Adams is reflecting on just how fragile this system is and how quickly it can be undermined by someone like Runcible, or maybe someone else, or, you know, that the whole thing is at risk of toppling. And that's why political propaganda and the lies are so important. So in chapter eight, Adams then meets David Lantano, and he appears to be very burned, um, and his skin seems to be all burned. We learn later he's not burned at all. He's just a Native American, but um, Adams doesn't really know what a Native American looks like, and most people don't, so he's able to fake it, just tell people that he's been burned. The reason he's burned is essentially because there are classes among the Yantsmen. He is a Yantsman, but he has, he's living in, in Cheyenne, and Cheyenne is like a hot zone, right? So he's been given his land, his domain, in a hot zone, right? And it's not yet ready to live. So he can only stay there like half the day, and then he has to move out the rest of the day. But he still has to stay there half the day because to claim the land, he has to be there. And so he's getting radiation, effects of radiation burns. That's the story anyways. That's what it seems to be. But what we learn are there are classes among the Antsmen, you know, based on where they live. And some people have better land than others, and some people have more, and they have more leddies or less leddies. Um, but Adams is really in awe with Lantano's speeches that he's able to, to create. And he's in awe of how someone so young, because David Lantano is quite young, learned to give, make speeches like this. Quote, where does a barely grown, radiation-burned, unestablished new Yansman get such ideas? And the ability to express them, and the know-how as to exactly what the, the vax treatment of the copy would result in. How would it ultimately emerge as spoken by the sin before the cameras? Didn't it take years to learn this? It had taken him years to learn what he knew, to write a sentence, and after examining it, to know exact, approximately, that is sufficiently accurate, how it will be in its terminal stage sound, be. End quote. You know, that's interesting because, you know, like a lot of writers maybe can't write screenplays, right? Because... There's a special skill in writing screenplays, right? Because when you write it on paper, how it sounds on the stage is different, right? Or how play sounds on the stage is different. Um, anyways, he's very impressed by David Lantano. In fact, he's actually scared of how good Lantano is. But they both agree that speech and language and the media are all incredibly imp important for maintaining the class structure, 
in this world and maintaining the, the, the boundary between the Yansmen and the people in the, the tanks. What the media has essentially done is created a feudal class of barons. And, and that's the language used by Joseph Adams here, that you know, the, the media, Talbert Yancey, the whole system has created a new feudal class. And it's all through words. It's all through propaganda and language. And p there's power in there. Now, perhaps Dick gives too much credit to language as a source of power. But in a media environment that we live in today, I think there's something to that. I, I think, you know, the, the authority that language has in keeping the boundaries between the rich and the poor intact. And maybe just, you know, like physical force doesn't matter nearly as much. Yeah, there are police, there are prisons and all that, but it's not as important as it perhaps was in the feudal age. So I think it's a very, it's a very interesting way of looking at, at power functioning. And there's a whole section here, it's actually a couple pages long, where Adams reflects on how words and language create power and that power creates classes. Um, and the class system he lives in and, and he frankly benefits from. Okay, so then in chapter 9 and 10, they're, they're kind of joined together. And so I'll just talk about them together. Adams goes to the archives to track down copies of, of like documentary A and documentary B. Now, what are these two documentaries? Essentially, they're the core histories of the Second World War that were delivered to the tankers. They're the core propaganda devices. And it's kind of like the initial lie. It's the initial foundational line which all these other lies are built and they're all in reinterpretations of of the second world war so documentary a is what was produced in the west right and the key there was rewriting the second world war in which germany's a victim and the soviets were the aggressors and that the allies were wrong in siding with the soviets right against the real enemy and that there was some kind of conspiracy involved in by in the soviet union to break up the Western powers, right? Now, the Soviets had their own version, that's documentary B, in which, in which the USSR and Japan gets presented as the heroes trying to save civilization from, from the West, right? So it's, it's all about like the awkwardness of the Cold War of, of Russia and the West being allies, right? And then Japan being an enemy and then an ally, right? Germany being an enemy and then an ally unless you live in the, the east so there's this awkwardness in the cold war era about these these wartime alliances right i don't know dick probably makes too much of it there's there's other explanations of why the cold war developed and people who were at peace go to war in future wars that happens all the time you know allies break up but they that's essentially what these documentaries are and they're multi-part they're they're many hours long and they, they really constitute the core lie, right? The core center of the propaganda engine, right? All other lies spring from these documentaries, and that's their importance. The interesting thing about them, though, is that they're, first of all, they're Cold War readings of World War II, right? They're reinterpretations of World War II from the perspective of the Cold War and the war, of course, that breaks out. But they're also very bad lies, and this is something that Joseph Adams thinks about. Like, for instance, it, there's clips in the documentary of Stalin speaking English. Of course, Stalin is an actor, played by an actor, and he's speaking English. Stalin didn't speak English, right? And he wouldn't have spoke English certainly out of Russians or to Germans, right? So it's all wrong. And anyone with a brain who looks at it and studies it can say, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. Yet that is 
that's what we're given here. And I think Dick's having a lot of fun here with, with the idea that a law, uh, that a lie can be, uh, and such a big lie and an important lie can be so flawed just on the surface of it. There's a lot of problems in these lies as well. Quote, Joseph Stalin had not known English, and since Stalin could not speak English, the scene could not have taken place. The crucial scene just now shown revealed itself for what it was, and by doing so revealed the entire documentary for what it was. A deliberate, carefully manufactured fraud, constructed for the purpose of getting Germany off the hook in regard to deeds done and decisions taken in World War II. Because in 1982, Germany was once again a world power, and most importantly, a major shareholder in the communities of nations tilting itself, the Western democracies, or more simply Westdem. The UN having disintegrated during the Latin American War of 1977, leaving in its place the power vacuum into which the Germans have expertly, eagerly rushed. End quote. So um, that's really what we learn in Chapter 10 is about the importance of these, these documentaries and the nature of, of media lies, right, which are more difficult to construct, perhaps. Now, there is a history of fake news that have been politically significant. I guess the best example would be the Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which is a real book. But of course, it was I think it was written by like the Russian secret police to make Jews look bad. And then the Nazis later on picked that up as evidence of, a natu- of an international Jewish conspiracy against, against Christians. So this stuff happens, and it's obviously fake, right? But people believe it. So it's not that hard to believe that fake news can be believed. Uh, it's just interesting that it gets promoted in the form of an official documentary history of World War II. Okay, with the situation of, like, the background and the history and the, the nature of the propaganda out of the way, um, Dick kind of is, is done setting up his stage at that point with Chapter 10. We're about a third of the way through the novel, and then we once we pick up with Nicholas St. James once again, and we pick up with a, pretty much where we left off, except now he's kind of climbed his way up, and it's, it's a long trip, but he climbs his way up to the surface, and he's fearful of being detected. He's really anxious about this. And in fact, when he does get onto the ground, he's immediately approached by by leddies. Um, and he finds out when he looks at the leddies that they're actually owned by Lantano and that they're in Cheyenne. So he knows where they are. I'm not quite sure if the Tomics knew they were under Cheyenne. They probably must have, but maybe they forgot. Um, but they're they're under they're in the Cheyenne, and this is of course the the domain um, of Lantano. And the ladies actually have like a, like a, the, you know, an ownership badge on them, you know, saying who they're owned by and, and where they're from, which of course is a bit odd because aren't these all supposed to be military uses and they're all sure be owned by the government, but now they have this kind of private um, dog tag almost on them. <clears throat> so that is, that's uh, where we pick up with, with Nicholas St. James in chapter 11. In chapter 12, we, we enjoy a long questioning by the ladies of St. James. Where are you from? What are you doing here? And, you know, at the same time he's doing this, he's talking to the tankers below who are, are trying to get news back, you know, from him because he's gotten the surface of trying to find out what's going on down there. So there's like a three-way conversation going on where St. James is talking through a radio or something or through communication device to the le- to the tankers and he's also talking to the ladies who are questioning him and basically threatening him with with death because that's the policy right these tankers who get to the surface are to be killed and actually it's something that nicholas st james thinks about at that moment which is like i'm going to be put to death by the product of my own labor all right which i again anyone who thinks this book is not about labor and control and and, and power and class systems, I think, isn't reading the same book I'm reading. Um, I mean, literally, 
we're told in the text that that St. James fears he's going to be killed by his own labor. Quote, the damaged Letty brought forth a tube-like apparatus and Nicholas knew that this was the dealer out of death. This would be it for him. With no further debate, the colloquy between the two ladies, and he kept thinking over and over again, we made them ourselves down in our shops. These are the products of our hands. This conversation was over and the decision had been made. Now, just as he's about to be killed and and put to death, something destroys the the Lettys. And a voice tells him to go to, to Cheyenne because he'll be safe there. There's other people there. And the figure speaking appears to him to be Talbot Yancey. And now we have kind of a really weird mystery here. We already know Talbot Yancey to be a simulacrum. He's not, it's not the kind of, and it's like a, the kind of simulacrums we have in that novel, the simulacrum, where they're just programmed. They're not AI. So they don't, they're not like what you have in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. They're simply automatons who re- redo whatever has been pro- they've been programmed to do. So the fact that, I mean, the Talbot Yancey simulacrum couldn't do this, couldn't, unless it was totally programmed to say this, but that seems a bit, bit off. So what is this? Why is Talbot Yancey there? Is he just seeing something? Is it, is there a real person who looks like Talbot Yancey? You know, there's a bit of a mystery about this event and it's explained later on, but um, it, it's kind of a, a moment of, of mystery. So after picking up with St. James and his, his adventure to the surface and how he survives his encounter with the Lettys that are guarding the surface, we pick up again with Adams and he's with Bros and they're talking about the artifacts for the scheme and they're being prepared and they're being talked about. Now, here's the thing. They need devices that if sent back in time, well, of course, be alien, or right? they'll be from the future, right? But they need to be dug up now and appear to be alien, right? So they can't just use like their ray guns or whatever. There, because people say, well, this has just been buried here for some reason. It has to be something that looks really foreign or strange. So they end up having to go to like these old weapon, weapons archives of weapon systems that weren't developed or whatever and de- make stuff. So they're going to make this stuff, and the plan is to send it back to f- like the 15th century. And the story is going to be that there was an alien invasion in 15, the 15th century and the Native Americans fought them off and there was this, this artifacts left behind. And then this becomes a very important historical site and then Runcible is not going to be able to build his apartments there. Right? So that's essentially the scheme. And Bros insists that these will be effective, but they have to be old. They can't just be planted there now, right? So they have to look old and they have to look like antiques. So they're going to use a time scoop to send these things back to the 15th century. So they'll actually be buried back there in the 15th century with the time scoop. That's a device, a technology that Dick uses a lot in his other stories. <clears throat> it's going to be prototypes of advanced, advanced weapons that haven't been developed on Earth, so no one now will, will think that these are human-made weapons. My question here for Dick is, wouldn't they be based on the same kind of technological kind of structures, right? Wouldn't an alien device have a completely different power source and circuitry system or things like that but dick doesn't get into that he just says let's use the advanced prototypes that were never developed use the time scooped so they'll be aged and they'll seem to be antiques and you know and that will that that that's how they're going to basically undermine runcible's plan there's a little side conversation about a woman who helped make these devices called arlene davidson who died nearly after and then um it's actually lynn bolom Adams' friend, who's an important secondary character here, who was about to quit at this point because he thinks that Bros 
had her killed because she developed this technology and then she knew too much sort of thing. But it, but no, it's, she didn't have access to an artiforged heart. She worked herself to death and had a heart attack and there's no artiforged hearts, even for her. And again, we're reminded that Brose is hoarding all the artiforged organs, making sure that no one else can survive indefinitely. So it's it's not just the tankers who can't get artiforged hearts. It's even other Yansmen who aren't able to, to get a hold of them. So um, now... Adams is thinking like us. Like, if there's this time scoop, can't they do a lot more with it? And he does think, right? He says, what if, what use an invention like that to that to invention like that? We could shoot back the scientific data, constructs of unfathomable value to civilizations in the past, formulate from medicines. It could be of infinite aid to former societies and people. Just a few reference books translated into Latin or Greek or Old English. We could cut off wars. We could provide remedies that might halt the great plagues of the Middle Ages. We could communicate with Oppenheimer and Teller, persuade them not to develop the A-bomb or the H-bomb. A few film sequences of the war they would live through they would live through could do that, but no, it had to be for this to concoct a fraud. End quote. And th- this is a theme that Dick comes back to again and again, not necessarily in this form, but you know, I'm thinking of like the psychic who's just working at the carnival, right? That great technologies who get reverted to mundane purposes, especially precognition in the 1960s, like in novels like The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, precognition becomes just a way of predicting the next fashion trend it the greatness of these of this potential is never fully utilized it always goes to the most mundane and silly and day-to-day thing and that's probably true of our technology too like think of all the wonderful stuff that are packed into the cell phone and we use it to like play music or something and we use it to to chit chat that's useful and that's good stuff but there's so much more that we could do with it and it seems our technology is not fulfilling our dreams and just look at any sci-fi prediction of what 2020 would look like you know none of you know they all look much cooler and fun than than what we have now usually anyways so um that's that's the plot um now in chapter 14 we're introduced to uh webster foot webster foot is essentially a like a detective uh, a private agent and he's got a bunch of workers with him they're called footmen and we meet Runcible for a very short period of time. He's not a major character in the novel, but we do meet him in this chapter, chapter 14, where a footman working for Webster Foot approaches him and says, basically, he's a psychic, right? What Foot is a psychic. And so he's warning Runcible that there's some plot against him and that he's in trouble. And Runcible says, no, the program has to go forward. We can't stop it. And so that's that's basically our introduction. That's all we really hear from Runcible. Mostly he's a background character who's building these complexes. But it's it's a moment in which he's worn and we're introduced to this character, Webster Foote, who is a detective with psychic powers. And he'll be an important figure in the second half of, of the novel. It does seem that Runcible is, is playing for the future. And just the, the whole idea that development must go on and the building project must go on is, I think, something that's on Dick's mind. It was certainly there in Martian Time Slip. This idea that nothing really can stop the, the bulldozers from coming in. And we're going to get a wonderful scene in a couple chapters that reflects, I think, this anxiety and this fear that, you know, the chain of progress, progress defined as just bigger buildings or more buildings or new buildings, is something that's not really stoppable. And I don't think it's so much about Runcible being stupid and not heeding his warning, but more the more meta argument here that <clears throat> the the apartment complexes will be built and there's there's not much we can do about it. 
chapter 15, we flip back to Nicholas St. James, and he arrives in Cheyenne, and he meets other former leddies. And they tell him uh, much of what we already know as readers about the truth. And we learn that there's essentially three groups on the surface, and then there's a leddy. So when I mentioned earlier that I think this novel is really, really laying the groundwork for a geography of, of our modern world, you know, it comes from this passage. Now, we have the Ozymandian structures, the huge dwellings of the, of the Yantsmen who live on huge feudal estates surrounded by entourages. They're, in, they're essentially in gated communities, right? They, what happens in, down in the tanks don't matter to them. They, they rule over them in a way, but the day-to-day doesn't really matter to them. They're, they're in their gated communities. They're protected. Then you have two groups on the surface. You have kind of the, the ex-tankers who, who go into the Rumsable apartments, right? And they're just still in prisons, essentially concentration camps. It's, it's already been described to us that they're, they're basically going to be living in tanks, but they'll be above ground. They'll still be limited. They, they'll still basically live the same kind of life, but they'll be on the surface and controlled and perhaps put to work, right? So that's kind of our suburbs. And the tankers below ground, a fourth group, are kind of the same group. They're the suburbs, if you will. They're the, the working class, middle class homes of the people who go to work every day and follow the rules and do things properly, right? Then we have the third group, and these are the people that Nicholas is meeting in Cheyenne, who are, they're not living on the surface all the time because they're not outside all the time because of the radio- radiation. It's still a hot zone, obviously. But they, they build these apartments and these rooms with, with ad hoc construction material, whatever they can find left over from the war. They're essentially slums. They make their own homes. Now, they don't have a purpose. They don't have a job. They don't have an economic role. But they're free. And they all think it's preferable to living in the Runcible apartments and the tanks. Right, but they are—they're kind of this—they're like the people in the slum, or they're like the—they're the people, I guess, who opt out or who aren't conforming to either the working class, ruling class dynamic that they can kind of escape. And they're an interesting group here, and it's—it's something you wish Dick would do more. I know cyberpunk writers have done a lot with that kind of low-life group. I guess that's who these are. These are the low-lifes who live on their own outside the system, and they're the most interesting. And that's who Nicholas is—is. getting the story from and they tell him the whole story about the war and how the war's over and how they're all being lied to and we learn that more from these people than from the Yantsmen themselves that the Yantsmen really live as feudal lords they use leddies even to fight wars against each other where they'll basically dress up as feudal lords and have these big mock battles almost they also create huge entourages where they surround themselves with other leddies to or they show themselves with leddies to show off how rich and powerful they are. And this is the whole reason that the people down in the tanks are working so hard. They're working so hard to give people status symbols, which is what these robots have become. Quote, some young men at their domains have like 2,000 leddies, a whole army. Bros, for instance, Blair said, he's supposed to have 10 or 11,000. But technically all the leddies in West Dem are under the military command of General Holt. He can preempt, you know supersede the orders of any Yantsman, any dominus of a domain, and call for its leddies, except for bros. No one can supersede bros. Bros is above them all. Like, for instance, he's the only one who has access to the weapons archives, the advanced types, the ones that never saw action, the really terrible prototypes are, that if they've ever been used, there'd be no planet. The war just barely stopped in time. Another month and nothing. Um, so that is, that's how these uh, lowlifes um, living outside the system, see um, 
the Yance Man system. They eventually welcome him into society. At first, Nicholas St. James is surprised they welcome him in, but it turns out they're, they're actually glad to have him, and they always like new people, and they're pretty open. Um, but there is this question of this dilemma of coming up early, because now Nicholas has a choice. Let's say he gets an forged pancreas, and he succeeds in his quest. Does he go back down and tell them? Does he bring these people that he knows very well in the tank, in Tom Mix, back to the surface, where they will, will to live in here, or live in the Runcible apartments, or, or do what? It's... It's a it's a it's a it's a dilemma that is going to hang over the rest of the novel. Really, is what is the solution to this? How do you break free of it? Do you just tear down the whole system and and see where the chips land, or do you you filter people out a little bit at a time? Do you slowly change the lies if we're going to break it down? It's it's not clear how it's going to to happen. And Nicholas St. James is, is certainly worried about the the consequences of changing things too fast. Now, next in chapter 16, we get a wonderful scene, one of my favorite in the novel, where a man named Robert Higgs, who's a, a Yance man, but he's like a low-ranking one, he's trying to assassinate Runcible at this work site where they have these automated bulldozers. Remember, the, the plan must go on, right? They're automated bulldozers and tractors and things that are making these apartments. And that's the scene we have. And Rob Hicks is preparing this assassination attempt. No, he's actually, or he's trying, he's there to make sure the plan is affected where they're going to find the artifacts, right? So he's there for, really for that purpose. Um, but I think he's also there for the attempted murder of Runcible too. They just want to add to the, <clears throat> to the plan. But the workings of development here, the way it's described is like the automated, machinery is such a powerful image and anyone who's who's seen neighborhoods bulldozed for new modern apartments neighborhoods destroyed in the name of development or urban renewal or whatever well well I think get some some feeling from this scene now eventually Robert Higgins killed he's it's not really clear what killed him or how but he dies and the but nothing changes right the machines keep rolling on right the and in fact, the artifacts that were planted way back in the 15th century with the time scoop and are now there are just dug over and never found. And so that whole plan to find these artifacts doesn't come to pass because Robert Higg was was killed. Chapter 17, um, Webster Foote, who we, we heard talked about early in an earlier chapter, and he now enters the story. And he's really investigating the, the assassination of Robert Higg. Now, Webster Foote is kind of a free agent. He has his own agenda and own purposes. He's not really under any strict hierarchical control. And he's got a psychic powers, which gives him a lot of authority over other people. And so we get a lot of his internal monologue. And we, and we realize that he does is kind of investigating this murder for his own purposes and he's not he's very skeptical of bros and he sort of wants to undermine bros so he becomes an important uh wild card like lantano's a, a wild card um, foot's another one but he's the institution he's institutional in the sense that he's like a detective right and he's got more people working for him or everything he's uh, like another outside agent though who can disrupt this this system um and he's actually using the psychic powers for a good thing in the sense of we, before we, we learned this technology was being used for mundane, uh, rather banal reasons. It could be used for great things. Here we have um, someone actually using his psychic powers to not just investigate a murder, but you know to, to see what he can 
do to sustain his own authority, expand his power, undermine his enemies, and things like that. Chapter 18, then we get the unreconstructed M scene. And if you read that story, it's a very, very similar scene where a robot sneaks into a house, plants evidence, and then finally assassinates someone. The person that's being assassinated is that Lin, Linbaum, who, you know, Joseph Adams' friend, the one who built those models and was involved in the artifact conspiracy. So he's the one that killed. But we get this really wonderful detailed scene of of almost word for word from what we saw in the unreconstructed M of a, of a robot killing someone and then leaving the, the, the clues around, the clues that will point back to someone and then transforms itself into a TV so it won't be found, right? So usually um, what we have here in technologically to make assassinations difficult are called death rattles. So the idea is when someone dies, the boss is alerted and then there can kind of be a lockdown. So any assassin won't be able to get away, at least. That's the hope. Um, so they can capture him in the house or something. But in this case, the assassin is just a robot that can transform itself into a television set. And so there's no, you know, he doesn't have to escape because no one's really going to find find him. Um, so that's the scene we get in 18. And then Webster Foot now arrives to investigate this murder as well. So he's got two murders now, the, the Lindbaum murder and the Robert Hake. Two of Bros's top men involved in this conspiracy have now been assassinated. Chapter 19, Bros blanches over the murder of, of his men. He fears for Joseph Adams and he's just freaking out and he's pressuring, I think he's meeting with Foot, pressuring him to find an answer to this. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know who's doing the killing and he's um, losing his mind over this. So it's, it's, a, it's a brief chapter, but it mostly focuses on Bros's uh, nervous breakdown over his plan failing and the kind of the, his plan fails, but also the people around him are being killed. And of course, we worries for his own life as well. Um, chapter 20, now we have the mystery in that the primary mystery is how did the assassin get away because of the death rattle, you know, the, the house should be locked down after the guy dies, but eventually foot, cause he's a really good detective. And he's got these psychic powers. He finds the killer and he finds that the killer is a TV set. Again, this is just drawn from the unreconstructed M. Uh, this part of the story is very similar to that, that tale. Um, continuing this, in chapter 21, we have the investigative side of that story, the unreconstructed and being replaced. And that is, you collect data on a crime. And you you eventually, by collecting all this data and small facts, you can create a gestalt, right? So that's why the robot had to plant certain evidence, like a skin flake and a piece of hair or, a, you know, a drop of blood or something at the scene, all of which will then can be taken together to form a gestalt, which will identify just one or maybe a handful of people as the possible murderer. Then the detective can narrow it down uh, through normal investigative techniques. Sometimes they'll just point to one person. Um, it's kind of like more interesting to me than pre-crime. I talked about this with the unreconstructed M. They were actually written around the same time, the Minority Report and this, that story. One is about whereas just psychics predict the future and then the problems with that. And in the Unreconstructed M, it's this idea of just using big data and the gestalt of data, of, of evidence, circumstantial evidence, to point to someone. Uh, that's more realistic and, and interesting in a way. You know, the fact that this kind of, a, you know, it's a, not the traditional detective way of, of seeking out clues. Foot, however, is more of a classic 
detective because he has psychic powers. He has abilities that normal detectives don't. But the typical way of doing this is is creating a gestalt from circumstantial evidence. Now, there's another mystery that comes up at this time, and that is who destroyed the Lettys in Cheyenne. News of this gets to them, and Foote adds this to the story. So he's starting to build a bigger picture of... of now we have two assassinations, and some Lettys were destroyed. And they actually have this photo images of this event. This was the event that Nicholas St. James was witness to, right, when he was saved earlier by someone who appears to be Talbot Yancey. <clears throat> so who destroyed the Lettys in Cheyenne? It seems to be Yancey. And what's the explanation for this? And Foote proffers an explanation at, at this point in the story. Quote, a dummy bolted to an oak desk programmed by the Megavac 6V stood behind the boulder in Cheyenne, hot spot, and fired a destruct beam at two veteran ladies. To save the life of what was undoubtedly just another poor tanker who had bored his way to the surface for a breath of fresh air and a glimpse again briefly of the sun. An ex-tanker now squatted in the ruins of Cheyenne with the rest of them, living for, waiting for God only knows what. And then his dummy, the simulacrum called Talbot Yancey, without anyone agency noticing, returned to the oak desk, rebolted itself back into a place, resumed its computer program speech delivery in existence. Resigned, accepting the sanity of it all, Webster Foote continued on the down ramp of the roof field to Marshal Heronze's office. I mean, that's the only explanation we really have is that someone programmed this Yancey bot, this Yancey simulacrum to do, to do the murder. But who and for what purpose? Um, now, Bros is identified as the murderer using the Gestalt, and this is not surprising, right? Everything is targeting the Bros organization. Two of his men are murdered. The third is at risk. Joseph Adams is worried he's going to be killed. And then, of course, if the evidence points to Bros, that undermines him, too. So all the pieces are in place to destroy the Bros regime. Um, chapter 22. Now, Nicholas arrives in the Cheyenne slums. Um, and he, he, there he meets Lantano. So he's been talking with these other slum dwellers there. He eventually, though, meets Lantano, who, who lives there. This is Lantano's domain. And Nicholas right away figures out that he's not burned. The story that he's burned isn't true, that actually he's an Indian. And race enters the story really for the first time here. Nicholas gets to business with Lantano telling him what he wants, an artifact pancreas, and Lantano eventually is able to give him a little bit more of the story about the world they live in. But, you know, basically, um, Nicholas St. James has gotten most of the story already. Uh, so this, the, the heart of this chapter is the meeting between St. James and, and Lantano. Chapter 23, um, now... Well, sorry, it's, this this gets into where Foote starts to dig deeper into this incident in Cheyenne. And they actually are able to take, you know, study the video. And they what they what they find is that person who shot and appeared to be Talbot Yancey shooting the Lettys is actually Lantano, but a much older version of Lantano. And one thing we, we learn now is that Yancey seems to be based off of Lantano in some way, which doesn't make any sense because Lantano is fairly young and, and Yancey is old and was established a long time ago. One answer is that maybe Lantano is just getting really old because of the radiation damage, but eventually the answer we get, because there's no Indians left. If he's an Indian, the, the Indians are gone and 
Dick actually writes in here at some point that by this point, the Indians had all been killed. Um, like Foote says, the man is not white. He's a Negro or an Indian or something. But there aren't any more Indians, Senkyo said. Remember that the article circulated just before the war, the ethnic resettlement program established on Mars involved virt virtually all of them, and they were killed in the first year when the fighting was confined to Mars. Those who remain behind on Earth, dot, dot, dot. So there's that Indian. So this Indian, if he is an Indian, he's from the past. And that's where the time travel comes in. So essentially what we learn in the course of this part of the story, and we're actually nearing the end of the novel already. There's only about 40 pages left at this point, is that Lantano is a time traveler from... You know, earlier on, those devices that Burroughs had sent back through the time scoop got picked up by Lantano, who would then time travel a lot. And so that explains why he's such a skilled um, speechwriter. It explains why he appears to be Talbot Yancey at different points of his life and his age, why he can appear at one point as old and another point as young. It's because it's all time travel. So it's kind of... Uh, an easy explanation for everything that's been going on. It's something Dick has used before in other stories. Um, he did it a lot in the simulacrum too. With uh, uh, there was there's a different name for it, but basically it was the same kind of idea of a of a time travel device. So the devices that got sent back, these experimental weapons, included enough technology that allowed Lentano to figure out time travel. So it's really kind of cool here that the origin of Yancey is connected to Lentano too. I think even Lantano, like Lantano appeared even in like those early documentaries as like a stock, like a figure in the background or something. And then that image gets used um, for Talbot and Yancey. Chapter 24. So Nicholas goes to meet Lantano's family and he has a whole family here. And Nicholas starts to think more and more about the scale of the truth and the scale of, of, what he's facing and again he's his real concern is how does we bring this back to the tom mix how what do we tell them i can't lie to them I can't be part of the f of the facade that's been keeping them enslaved but at the same time the danger of letting them let them out now at some point uh while nicholas is meeting with the lantano family and having a kind of a nice some downtime with them joseph adam arrives he's terrified too he's scared by the death of 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 limblom he he thinks Bros is after him. He thinks Bros is the one doing the killing. He figures he needs Lantano's help and he's begging for Lantano's help. And he, he's convinced that he needs to stop Bros. Lantano, Lantano tells him how the machine that killed that, that killed his friend, Lin, Linbaum, could be used to construct a fraud. Now, Latano is pushing the idea that Bros did the murder. Now, Webster has already gotten the report that the evidence left by this machine pointed to, to Bros. But Lantano wants Adams to think Bros is the perpetuator of this assassination. And here's what Latano said. And so Bros saw a way of manufacturing a de facto case that he was not the authorizing source of the mocker. Since its clues pointed to him and it's axionic that the trail of clues deposited by the mocker are spurious, then Foote, whose job it is to know this, knew as Bros intended that Bros was to be thought of as the killer. However, Bros is not innocent. Bros programmed the mocker to indicate himself, and that means certifying to the police mind his innocence. Now, he goes on to push it. Basically, the idea here is if you're going to frame someone, you do a bad frame job, but you frame yourself. 
So if you frame yourself poorly, then every the police will think it's a frame. We'll figure out it's a frame job and then not look for someone else, not you, because who would frame themselves? Well, I guess that's the idea that Lantano was pushing to, to explain why Bros would both um, convict himself with the evidence and then also be the one who perpetuated the murder and, and the fraud in the first place. It's kind of a cool idea, and it would be really... If it could be developed by a mystery writer, I'm sure someone has done this before. But it's it's be an interesting thing to see done in a, in a full-blown mystery novel. Um, so that's, that's the explanation that Latano gives Joseph Adams for what's going on. And this is all part of Latano's plan to to stop Rose and to get Adams, Joseph Adams on board, his scheme, his plan to, to stop, to stop Rose and end that regime, or at least that, that bastion of power once and for all. Now, Nicholas, of course, still wants his, this pancreas. And just as he's thinking about this foot arrives with an artifact pancreas for him. So now all our characters are together. We have Nicholas, Adams, Foot, Lantano are all together in Cheyenne and all for their own reasons committed to this movement against Bros. Nicholas because he I guess he well he's he's still self-interested for the artifact but he doesn't want to continue to live in a, in a world of falsehood. Uh, Adams for his own self-interest because he thinks he's being targeted by Bros. F- foot um well, Foot eventually gets gets convinced to go along with it by Lantano, and then you know Lantano also wants to undermine, uh, get to get you know just expose the truth to the world. So they're all basically on board this, and they're all ready then to move on Bros. Now the plot accelerates pretty quickly at this point, and they they quickly come up with a scheme to attack Bros to assassinate him. And that's pretty much affected very, very rapidly. So in chapter 25, Lantano and Foot work out this idea to kill Bros. Uh, they eventually talk Adams into doing it. So the one who's actually going to do the assassination is Adams, and he, but he's given the device and the machinery he needs to do that. In chapter 26, Lantano admits to Nicholas St. James that he programmed the mocker. And he did this basically to get Adams on board to to frame Bros and to undermine undermine his whole regime. Um, Foot is Foot's role in all this seems to be to reach out to Runcible and get him to cooperate on kind of constructing carefully a new system, like a, a new truth, something that can start to liberate the tankers from from underground. And the plan is that, because Yancey is simply an automaton, right? He's just a simulacrum who repeats what he's programmed to repeat. He can start to change his role. He can start to be a role advocating for the tankers or filtering information down to them and maybe slowly feeding them information. But what they're going to need is a new group of people in power who are sympathetic to their goals. And so that is the hope that Runcible, although he's primarily a developer who wants to profit from the tankers coming up, at least he'd be on the, he'd be supportive of the idea of bringing up more tankers because he could then profit from that uh, as a, as a developer. Now, chapter 27 we're getting near the end, only three chapters left. We get the assassination of Bros by 
Joseph Adams. And, the, you know, there's a technology involved in that. Um, but the interesting part in this chapter, it seems to me, is the way Joseph starts to think about Bros in new ways. And Bros is old. He's 80. He's decaying. He's, he's constantly having to replace his organs with artificial ones. And Adams starts to think of Bros as essentially decay and rot and almost entropy. Quote, as Bros, and Bros, he realized, will get worse as that brain rots more and more, as those microscopic structures of minute blood vessels continue to occur, as bit after bit of brain tissue clogged, deprived of oxygen and nutrients perish, and leaves the remnants just that much more revolting, much less to be depended on ethically and pragmatically. The next 20 years under the decaying rule of Stanton Bros would be even more profoundly ghastly as the decay of the center guiding organ penetrated deeper, ceaselessly deeper, and lured the world along with it. And he, all the antsmen, all of them would be jerked and dangled by the conclusive twitches on the deranged master string. And Bros's brain degenerated as extensions of Bros would all of them degenerate in, res in resonance. God, what a prospect. End quote. And this is partially what convinces Adams to commit fully to the plan because he realizes that their system is on borrowed time and that he can be part of the replacement or he can continue on to this decaying structure. So this helps convince him to to do the assassination. Now, after the assassination's done, Nicholas and Adams begin to talk and they talk about the future. Um, well, Adams and Nicholas get to talking. Uh, they talk about the future. They talk about the ultimate truth um, that they're in, the future of the anthills, Nicholas's decision to go back down uh, to deal with that. Of course, his family is down there and he has to deal with them. So that is the, the heart of their conversation at this point. There's some interesting things here really about, you know, the nature of truth. And the, the significance of that and, and how one approaches it in, in this sensitive situation. I, I think that's really, I think, the, kind of the emotional heart of this story is to what degree can people in entrenched situations, in media bubbles, in, you know, face a truth, a profound truth that will disrupt that? I mean, is it something that can be taken all at once or is it something that has to get gradually, you know, shifted? I mean, this is kind of, if you go back to the story of the, the mold of Yancey, that's kind of the conclusion is, yeah, Yancey gradually moved these people to uh, to homogenous thinking, right? But that same Yancey could then shift people to have a more diverse and democratic way of thinking of the world. So it's, you know, they can be guided to the truth, but a sudden realization of the truth could be a little bit too devastating. And this is really why Nicholas is so important because he is an authority figure in in the tanks and at least in his tank and he has to think about all the consequences of giving the truth to them. In chapter 28, Nicholas and Adams go to Tom Mix together. Um, they're bringing, of course, the art of forged pancreas and they're still discussing about how to bring the truth to these people. Um, uh, Nicholas thinks a lot about the importance of Nunez and the importance of the Estates um, Park government sending these political agents um, down because there couldn't be direct contact with the outside world. There always had to be this 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 middleman. Um, he also thinks about how easy it was f to just accept the truth that's been given to them and how 
rare it was that people thought against it and then were reminded of Carol's questions earlier in the novel. And of course, Carol's in this scene. And so it's, you know, she's the one who sort of saw something was wrong before anyone else, but she's rare. She's, she's one of a handful that, that identifies that. And most people seem to simply accept um, that, that basic reality. Um, the, the, the rally that's been given to them through, through the media, through the, the propaganda of, of the politically powerful. Um, chapter 29, the final chapter, we're back to a conversation between Adams and Nicholas. And basically, we have here a power vacuum now and the question of what's going to replace it. Um, really, new lies or liberation. That's pretty much the two options we're given. And Adams, who basically lives his whole life as a liar and writing lies and writing speeches that are lies and sustaining those lies for his own personal benefit, sees an opportunity here for him and people like him to construct a new system in which they're the new bros. Essentially, they're going to be the ones in charge again. And Nicholas has in a, a slightly different agenda, of course, of trying to liberate the anthills, the tankers. So Nicholas is looking at it more cynically. Or not Nicholas, Joseph Adams is looking at it more cynically. He says, quote, listen, Nick, whoever they are, whatever combination out, out of all the possible crazy Bellfells conniving, double dealing, deals and deals out, Whatever group or person has gotten its paws temporarily, anyhow, anyhow, in the winning cards after this long day of whatever took place, they have a job, Nick. They have the job now of explaining away this entire planet of green, neatly trimmed, leddy garden cared for park. That is it. That's not just satisfactory explaining it to you or me or a couple of ex-tankers here and there, but to hundreds and hundreds of millions of hostile, really furious skeptics who are going to scrutinize every single word that ever issues out of the TV set by anyone from this moment forward into the future. Would you like that job, Nick? Nick, just exactly how would you like to have it? I would. Nicholas says, I wouldn't want the job. And then Adam says, I would. I wish to God I were on it. I wish I was sitting in the office in the agency right now at 585th Street, New York, monitoring this transmission as it goes out on the coax. It's my job. was my job, but the fog scared me, the loneliness. I let it get to me. But I could, could go back now, and it wouldn't get me. I wouldn't let it, because this is so important. We were working up all this time, this moment when we had to account for it all, when we, even if we didn't know it. It added up to this, and I'm not there at this moment, finally coming, and I'm off and hiding. I ran. End quote. So he wants to be part of this kind of weaning the people off it. He's he's kind of fascinated by the challenge of it all, because at some point it's kind of like the back to documentary A, like Stalin speaking English. The, the truth is apparent to anyone who just like opens his eyes and looks or goes to the surface and looks or watches Yancey carefully and figures out that something's off about it. The answer is so obvious right in front of everyone's face that. This is the ultimate challenge then for the propagandist is to explain this away. And, you know, something that's in a lot of Dick's writing is, you know, the bullshit job, the job that doesn't have any meaning, the job that doesn't do anything. And then the job that really gives people meaning. Right. And in this case, for Joseph Adams, really explaining away this reality and finding a way to make these hundreds of millions of people who from this point on are going to not believe anything why would they right they've been lied to their whole lives since the war began and now they're told to believe what's coming on the tv they're not going to do it now you know dick here is i think optimistic about how much people you know can what could be free thinking 
I think people figure out they're being lied to, but then we'll still accept what's on TV, you know, what they're coming from the media. So I, I think it's a little bit easier than perhaps Adams points out, but the way it's presented here, it's really powerful. And it's something that Joseph Adams wishes he was a bigger part of. He almost wants to be part of this new ruling, ruling regime. Now in the final scene, actually St. James gives him a little bit of like an excuse they could probably give. Like he says, quote, the radiation level, Nicholas said, he felt tired considering and not too pessimistic, not by any manner of means despairing. Despite what both he and Adam saw, the task, which had step-by-step approached unnoticed, all of them waiting, and for each of them, unproductive years. That radioactivity, Nicholas said. At that, Adam's eyes flickered intensely. That radioactivity, Nicholas said, has now just finally, after all this time, at last dropped to a tolerable level. There it is. What about that? And throughout all the years, you were forced to say, you had no choice, just no choice at all in the matter. It was morally and practically necessary to say so, that the war was going on, or otherwise people, as you know they would always do, would have rushed to the surface. Too soon, Nicholas said. That way, they naturally act in their stupidity and the radiation that would have killed them. So actually, when you get right down to it, this was self-sacrificing, the sort of moral responsibility that your leadership entailed. How about that? End quote. So at the end, it's actually Nicholas who gives Adams the line, the propaganda line that can be used to justify this whole thing. But we, we end the story on a fairly optimistic note with hopes that at some point in the future, the anthills will open up, the tankers will come, rush to the surface, and people will, you know, there'll be some restructuring of, of political power. We don't know what that's going to be. We don't know who's going to be in charge. All we know is the old system of Yancemen and tankers is going to break down. There's going to be some new new balance emerging out of out of this system and and out of these the events of the novel. And, and that's where we leave off. It's very much like the simulacrum in that it leaves off right when kind of everything opens up. He's not interested in telling a complete story here. It's almost like the first half of a novel about, you know, another author would maybe go in to explain or there'd be a sequel, right? You know, some other writers might have a sequel to it. The penultimate truth two, you know, where they get the what new order follows it. Dick doesn't do that. He doesn't waste time with that. He just says, you know, it's there's all these different options for the world. And maybe they'll figure out a lie that'll that will they'll satisfy the masses and, and provide for a soon transition. Maybe there'll be a civil war. Maybe maybe they maybe some more cynical Yancemen will reestablish control. You know, the Leddies, they're who knows what's gonna happen with them. What about the Soviets and the, the Eastern powers you know what about their tankers there's a lot of unanswered questions and they don't need to really be be answered because dick's interested really in this the system and then how it broke down and how it broke down is important because it breaks down largely because of the political machinations among the ruling class the system may have been unstable and we're reminded it's of its instability throughout the novel by various characters but what finally shatters it is the ambitions, the conflicted behavior, the the interparty fighting of different Yancemen, particularly Runcible and Brose, their conflict over what to do, you know, to, do we profit from tankers coming to the surface or do we keep them down? Do we, do we, you know, are the hardliners or do people want to profit from a slowly changing system are the two, two factions and they're the ones fighting it out. In a sense, Runcible's approach is it's probably what's going to win out. 
that's what we're led to believe because certainly the system's not going to be maintained. Um, you got foot up there working with Runcible to program Yancey to give speeches that open up a, a broader world to them and, and we have Adams thinking maybe this radiation argument will be what will convince people that they can move up and justify decades of essential slavery. So, there, But there's different options. And I, I think I like that about Philip Dick's novels of this period is that he doesn't, an, he doesn't answer everything. He just plays with his ideas as long as he wants to. He usually leaves with some kind of shattering of, of the system and then kind of leaves the future unwritten. He did it actually in The Simulacrum and he also did it in Clans of the Alphane Moon, where we really don't know how it's going to end up. We, we just, you know, we had a, a static system and it was shattered. And then some new world is just in its sprout phase. Um, so that's it. That's kind of my my play-by-play talk through of, of the penultimate truth. I really, really like it. I, I think this novel complements the other novels of 1964 very, very well thematically. Uh, there's a lot of things that were on Dick's mind that he kept coming back to. One would be the simulated president, the simulated leader, uh, which we saw in, in two of these novels. Uh, but all of them, all four of the novels published in 1964, play with the uh, robotics and the automaton and the, the line between human and robot. And it's, it's done... Maybe not here as well as in some of the other novels, but it's here as well with uh, robotic Yancey and then contrasting that with the time traveling Lentano. You know, that's that's rather fun. Um, we have time travel done in, in all three of these novels. Not It's not in Clans of the Elfay Moon, uh, but even there you have a little bit with that character who can turn back time just for 10 minutes or something. But uh, three of them have time travel. Um, a couple of them deal with mental illness. This one doesn't really have mental illness, in so, except insofar as the tankers or the Yancemen or others might have kind of a systemic mental illness, but it's not um, Dick's focus here. Um, now, despite there being a lot of, of commonalities between these novels in 1964 and some common themes and common feeling to it, this one is... I guess the bleakest, the least funny, it, it's the rest have a lot of jokes and are much more humorous to read. Uh, this is a much ser more serious novel. I don't can't think of any real jokes. I mean, there's always a bit of quirkiness to Dick that's is humorous uh, in certain contexts. But by and large, The Penultimate Truth is a fairly bleak and sober novel um, dealing with kind of relatively somber themes, you know, the it's much more about labor. It's much more about the exploitation of working people, which isn't so much in the simulacrum. I mean, a bit of it's there, but it's not really in those other three novels from, from this period. This one is, is a straight up story of exploitation and slavery and, and how that slavery could be maintained. There's not much room for jokes and, and comedy like in Clans of the Elfane Moon, which is uh, kind of a running joke and, and a lot of fun. So I guess that does it. I thought I'd actually have more to say about the penultimate truth, but, um, you know, I've been talking about it for two hours, more or less. Um, yeah, the, the themes are media bubbles, uh, war, labor, and the relationship between power and, and 
and lies, truth and lies. Uh, that's the heart of it. Uh, to what degree does power need lies to sustain itself? And it's still a very, very important uh, fact. Uh, with all the talk about fake news and a president who makes lying a uh, just part of his political rhetoric, and, and it's rather openly, a president who openly lies while claiming everyone else is lying. It's, it's kind of a fascinating a moment we live in. And I, I'm sure Philip K. Dick would have a lot to say about the Trump presidency. Um, in fact, we see characters who very much uh, reflect that. Um, uh, but yeah, that's the heart of it. The, the use of, of truth or the lack of truth to, to maintain a political, political facade. And then is that weak? Is it fra fragile? Can it be maintained? Um, we see here in this book that very little things can, can shatter that. And, and the truth does come out. Um, it's not the penultimate lie. The, the book's called The Penultimate Truth. And yeah, the fact that there can be layers of truth is, I guess, a level of falsehood to that, right? There can only be, I guess, one deep down truth. So once we start admitting la layers of truth, we're kind of f fudging the meaning of truth a little bit. But he's not, f you know, the title is not The Lies. There, there's another book called Lies, Inc. that, that does that. This, this one's about revealing the truth. And I think there's some optimism to the story that way. I really like it. I, I'm, it's one I've come back to several times. I really like the way the urban space is described in it. And we have this kind of four-part division of society, which to me reflects so much the world we live in now with gated communities and slums and kind of bourgeois middle-class suburbs of, of working people. And, you know, people who aren't in the elite have a choice between being kind of work to death and to sustain their kind of suburban communities and homes and fighting tooth and nail to keep those keep them or they can choose to opt out and live kind of in slums maybe be a little bit freer but suffer depredations and, and poverty and and lose that security when we see the tankers who believe so firmly in what they're doing and anguish over the fact that they can't meet their quotas i mean how many people with the bullshit jobs or with you know, who are being exploited in the workplace still think their work is valuable and still see so much of their identity and value tied up in that job. I mean, that's really true to life to me. So anyways, I really like this story. I, if you haven't read it, I urge you to to pick it up. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it here. Uh, if you have your own thoughts about the penultimate truth, though, please leave them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I would very much like to to hear your emails, hear your thoughts about the story. Obviously, I, I've only talked about this for a little while. Um, I probably could have said a lot more about it. So if there's anything I missed, anything I misinterpreted, you think, anything I, I rushed over that I shouldn't have, please let me know, and, and I'll try to come back to those those thoughts in a, in a future episode. Um, so let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this novel. Let me know what you think of the novels in 1964. It was such a productive year um, that, you know, four major novels and a lot of great short stories were published that year. So it was a big year for, for Philip Dick. Um, really a definitive breakout year in a lot of ways. So please let me know what you think about these four novels that we've looked at over the past few weeks and particularly your thoughts on The Penultimate Truth. So thank you so much for, for listening and for sharing uh, your time listening to my thoughts about this novel. 
Next up, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into the stories of 1964, and there's a handful of those. And then we'll come back to the novels a little bit later, jumping into 1965 with Dr. Blood Money, or Holly Stopped Worrying and, and Got Along with the Bomb. That's another great novel. Um, very thematically a little bit different than what we've, we've seen so far, but uh, one of my favorite post-apocalyptic tales ever written, um, in part because it's so optimistic about humanity. It's, it's such a wonderful celebration of the human spirit. So I'm looking forward to preparing my, my thoughts about Dr. Blood Money, but first we got to look at a few more short stories, primarily those, well, those stories published in 1964. So thank as always for listening, and I will see you next time. And contentment forever If you're